Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I'm here with Sarah Coles, our Personal Finance Analyst. Sarah, so nice to be back with you. Although as ever, we're still broadcasting from our own broom cupboards and boot rooms. Yes, and mine is freezing now, although it's all my own fault because I'm just refusing to turn the heating on. Well, I'm sure you're not alone. Half the country is probably working in their coats trying to stay warm without breaking the bank now that the cold weather has arrived. It's one impact of the ongoing energy crisis that's having a huge effect across the board. In fact, we're devoting this podcast to the topic and what it means for consumers, businesses and investors in an episode we're calling The Power Trip. Yes, the soaring price of energy isn't just a pain for consumers, it's also putting businesses under pressure. Sophie Lundiates, an equity analyst here at Hargreaves Stansdown, is going to look at the impact of the rising oil price on listed businesses and how the oil majors are working to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. Hi both. Yes, it's definitely a bit crazy out there at the moment. Um, Looking forward to, to digging into some of those specifics a bit later on. So one key to making alternative energy sources work is effective battery storage. So we're going to be talking to the co-founder of Zenobi Energy, which provides battery storage services. Nicholas Beattie. Hello there, Nicholas. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Uh, Good morning, Susanna. How are you? Very well. Really looking forward to finding out a lot more about your business. And Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, is going to talk about the fundamentals of investing in energy and commodities with Evie Hambro, manager of the BlackRock World Mining Trust. Plus, we're going to have our quiz, of course, and this time looking at some of the more bizarre alternative energy sources. But before we get plugged into the energy crisis, it's worth casting ahead to one of the biggest stories of the next couple of weeks, which is the budget. So Rishi Sunak is going to deliver his speech on the 27th of October, which has been brilliantly timed to completely destroy my half term. And as ever, there's a huge amount of speculation about what might be in it. Yes, we've all seen so much discussion about possible tax rises and spending cuts. Sarah, what kind of thing are you worried about making an appearance? Well, there's a handful that would be a real mistake. So there's a worry that pensions could be seen as the Chancellor's piggy bank again. There's two allowances to keep an eye on. The first one is the lifetime allowance, which is the most your pension can be worth over your whole lifetime. And the second is the annual allowance, which is the most you can pay in during the year. So they're both set at the sort of level that looks like it's only going to bother the very wealthiest. But in reality, neither is a vast sum of money in pension terms. And to add to that, a change to the lifetime allowance is the kind of retrospective taxation that makes it really Really hard to plan for the future. We also don't want to see the dividend tax allowance cut. So this has only been around since 2016 and it's already been cut once, so from £5,000 to £2,000. And it'd be a massive blow for investors who have portfolios outside ISAs and also for people who run their own businesses and pay themselves in dividends. And that group in particular has been one of the groups who had the least help during the crisis. So loads of them have already taken a really serious dent to their financial resilience. And so this would just add insult to injury. And of course, there's always the risk of more tinkering around the edges. The government asked the Office for Tax Simplification to review inheritance tax and capital gains tax. It's also looked at how national insurance works with income tax and into the structure of tax relief on pensions. So far, there's been little time and space for reform, but in the interim, there's always the temptation to make piecemeal changes to free up a bit more cash here and there. But this kind of fiddling can cause needless complications and unintended consequences. 
It really, really can. But, but it's not all bad news. So we might also hear the details on the NSNI green bonds. We know they're going to be three-year fixed-term bonds and we know that they're going to support environmental projects. So this time we might find out the interest rate available. And so savers are really going to be keeping their fingers crossed that it's going to be good for their savings as well as for the planet. Yes, the green agenda is certainly on the rise and unsurprisingly so, given that energy is increasingly in focus as we wrestle First with much higher gas prices and now with the oil price, along with labour shortages, port blockages, soaring energy costs are just one of the rising prices slamming businesses from all directions right now. Energy intensive industries have lobbied the government for funding to help them survive without shutdown as winter looms and and consumers are protected to some extent until next spring, even though around two million have been switched to higher tariffs already after the collapse of cheaper suppliers. Yes, including mine, which is really annoying. But for everyone else, the energy cap does offer some protection for now. Um, But a new cap's going to come in in April, and it does look as if that's going to be much, much higher. In the meantime, unless the government steps in, businesses are going to have to keep absorbing these higher costs because, of course, they don't benefit from a price cap. So why is this happening? Well, fundamentally, it is supply and demand, but the added complications of Brexit, climate change and the post-pandemic surge in demand, particularly from Asia. But it's also very much because gas is seen as a transition fuel. It has almost half the carbon emissions as coal. And so until more renewable fuel sources come online, countries will be stepping on the gas even more. However, because it's a fossil fuel, there has not been as much exploration and development of new gas fields. Supply from Russia has dropped as the country's built up its supplies. And in addition, we're feeling the pinch here in the UK in particular because we have less gas storage capacity than in other European countries. And the oil price has been driven up too. It's pretty much the last thing we needed after all that chaos on the forecourts we saw. Yeah, there was hope that the oil cartel OPEC Plus would turn on the taps a bit more to relieve prices, but not just yet. They're sticking with only a bit of an uplift in production in November. And with some power stations now expected to switch from gas to oil, given how high gas prices have gone, the expectation is that the oil price could be pushed up even further in the months to come. So it's all come together as a bit of a perfect storm for prices. And it's not just fossil fuels we have to worry about. A lack of windy weather has also caused problems with wind power. Hasn't the lack of wind this summer partly been behind the soaring gas price? Well, it's certainly not helped and it's highlighted as a bit of a weak link in the UK transition to renewables. Just as we needed the energy the most, the wind in the North Sea died down over the summer months. Now, usually we're reliant on wind for around a fifth of the UK's energy needs. And so it really did force the energy markets to scramble for gas reserves to try and heat homes and power businesses. So battery storage appears to be part of the answer and the technology really has a role to play in ensuring that homes and businesses can be powered by green energy even when the sun isn't shining or the wind has stopped blowing. And that's the business our guest on the podcast today is in. So let me bring in the co-founder of Zenobi Energy, Nicholas Beattie. Nicholas, why are battery solutions so key to this adoption of alternative energy? Batteries are there to be able to store the energy and be able to release it when it's needed. So you've already pointed out um, we've had rather less energy generated from the wind um, this year than we've had since 1961. And as a consequence of that, we've had a lot of that energy generated at a period when we're not actually able to use it. So the simplistic answer is, frankly, using the batteries, we're able to store the energy when it's being produced but can't be used because there's no demand for it, and then release it at a point in time when the demand increases and exceeds the supply from the normal generators. So clearly expanding battery storage capacity 
could help relieve the situation to a large extent. Why isn't this expansion happening more rapidly then? As you can imagine, it's not an easy thing to achieve and there's an enormous amount of costs associated with getting the batteries put into the grid at the right places. As you know, uh, the national grid has been split into a number of different operations, one of which includes the separation of the transmission system, which is the, now called the ESO, although it still sits under the national grid ownership. As a result of that, the ESO has been working very hard to see what the right structure for the transmission system should be for the future to meet the requirements, as a lot of this generating capacity has come on. And they are taking some time to put out the tenders that are required to bring much larger batteries onto the system. That has been, I think, one of the major reasons for holding up this process. The capital is available in the market to support large energy developments and and large battery developments. But at the moment, we need to be able to see contracts that are available that can support the investment in this area. And there's still quite a lot of debate and crafting of the contracts to meet um, those requirements and to get that capital flow moving. It must be incredibly frustrating that you know the technology is there, it exists, yet isn't being wrapped up. It's frustrating, but you've got to bear in mind, you know, the UK is ahead of pretty much any other country in the world in terms of the regulations that are available to deploy these storage assets. We, for instance, have had an investment by JIRA, which is owned by Chubu and TEPCO, the two largest generators in, in Japan, who wanted to invest in a business in the UK because they wanted to understand what it meant to deploy um, batteries. And because the UK is so advanced relative to other countries in this regard, we're able to help them understand that. And now they're exporting that into Japan. So I wouldn't say it was entirely frustrating because we can see on the horizon, there's a lot more opportunities for us to deploy further batteries. As I said, the ESO is absolutely intent on getting that done. And it's just finalising a number of major contracts that we believe will release the opportunity for um, independent capital to invest in this area. Just to take a, a little step back, so can I ask a little bit about you so, and how you actually got into this sort of battery storage business? Absolutely. Well, I had a curious answer to this. I live in Northamptonshire and in about 2014, I had next door neighbours who were looking to put up a wind farm. The two villages near to where I live were very anti a wind farm. And as a consequence, I suggested that an alternative could be to put up some solar farms, which we duly did. And we put up two solar farms on 25 acres. And then we put batteries on those farms to improve and optimise the economics and make sure that they operate in a, in a more efficient manner. And those were the first batteries in, I think, remember 2016 in the UK that were then co-located alongside PV generation at solar farms. From that, we went on and established Zenobi, and we're now with 75 megawatts of battery assets and another 100 megawatts in build, one of the largest owners of batteries um, in the UK. Now, there is still, Nicholas, a relatively slow uptake of electric vehicles, despite a surge in September with around 32,000 new EVs being registered. I think range anxiety is still a real worry for so many people who might potentially make a purchase but are putting it off. What solutions are there already and what solutions are quickly coming down the road? I think the first thing is that if the government provides um, grant, I know they've been reducing the grant support that they've they've offered, which I think is absolutely the right thing, so that more people 
can partake in those grants and, and get out there and buy EVs or lease. So I think that's moving all in the right direction. The technology is definitely developing in terms of the quality of the batteries are getting much more energy dense than they were, say, five or ten years ago. So smaller batteries can take you further. Also, the size of the batteries on the vehicles is increasing. So the range is increasing. And then the final thing is we're seeing quite a major change in the amount of choice that the consumer has because there's a lot of uh, manufacturers that are beginning to release you know, lots of new vehicles. Everything, again, is going in the right direction. It could be faster when equally the government is absolutely supporting with grants the amount of EV charging that's available around our roads. And again, I think that will address the range anxiety issue. Is it particularly in the, in the infrastructure for charging that you think the government has a role now? Or do you think there's other ways that they could help? I think that it's in both the infrastructure question which needs to be addressed because that's obviously quite an expensive part of the whole process. But I think also it's giving grants to get the first lot of adopters into EVs so people can say, well, I've got an EV car, you try it out and then talk to their next door neighbours, etc, etc. I think it'll be very like the solar process where the government was very successful in supporting solar in the UK. Once they got that industry established, they were able to turn off the funding and allow the private markets and the consumers to make decisions about what they wanted to do. You've already been helping to try and solve public transport puzzles when it comes to EVs. How have you been involved at Zenobi Energy? We have a, a large business which is involved in supporting the major bus operators here in the UK and now um, outside the UK in Australia and New Zealand. We've solved two problems for them. The first one is being able to design and finance and implement the electrification of their depots because clearly the depots which buses operate from, diesel buses or hybrid buses operate from, don't have uh, sufficient electricity. One of our solutions is to be able to provide stationary batteries at the depots which can store the energy during the day when the buses are out on the route and then release that at night with our software which regulates that process. And that's a much cheaper way than upgrading the electricity supply into those depots. So that's been one major area where we've helped the public transport uh, begin to electrify. And the second one is where we've actually helped finance the buses themselves. The buses essentially are two components, one of which is very expensive, is the battery, and the rest is what we call the chassis or the rest of the vehicle. So what we've been doing is providing the battery on the bus as a service to the customer. So we take all the technology risk associated with that. We put our telematics and our software on the vehicle, which can also talk back to the charging. And through that, we're able to optimise not only the charging of the vehicles, but also optimise the use of the vehicle during the day, providing data in a good form so that the operator can make sure that its drivers are driving the vehicles in the most efficient manner, and also financing those batteries so that the total cost of life of the vehicle is down an equivalent to a diesel vehicle. I think we represent about 30 to 40% of the UK market in terms of ownership and uh, support for electric buses. And we're doing that with not just the major operators, the go-aheads, the stagecoaches and people like that, but also with the local councils like Newport and Cardiff and up in Glasgow with some private operators and Leicester. So you've certainly been helping in terms of uh, the sustainable transport infrastructure. But just how sustainable is the battery storage business, though? Because rare earth minerals are essential components and there are some concerns about the mining of these materials. 
Absolutely, but you've got to remember, you know, lithium is a mineral which is very abundant. It's just very expensive to get it into the pure form you need to use it for the batteries that we're talking about. There's a lot of lithium, for instance, in Chile. There's um, actually in China, they're quite integrated back into lithium mines. Around the globe, Australia obviously has it as well. But at the moment, we're producing about 850,000 tonnes of lithium, and we need to substantially increase that output, probably by a factor of three times over the next five years. So there needs to be significant investment in the mining and the extraction of this material because it's much quicker and easier to build a giga plant where you build the batteries than it is to build the extraction mine and get the quality of the, of the uh, raw lithium up to the level that's required for the batteries. Okay, Nicholas, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been uh, really fascinating to hear about the progress in battery storage here in the UK and beyond. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much indeed for having me on your podcast. I very much appreciate it. Okay, well, we can bring in Sophie Lunge Yates now to look at a slightly different angle, looking back to those uh, soaring gas prices and the increase in the oil price. Sophie, it looks as though, you know, many companies, the oil majors, are being massively buoyed by soaring prices. Is there any part of this that's profiteering? Hi, Susanna. So it's not really that simple necessarily. Gas prices are set by the market and this is a decentralised market. By that I mean its price is determined by traditional supply and demand dynamics. So retail suppliers have to pay the market price for those goods. So if they're having to buy at sky high prices, then this will filter down to their customers. It's also worth remembering that the energy suppliers themselves are subject to government price caps, again, that you were you were mentioning earlier, which are there to protect consumers. Now that cap is reviewed every six months and it's influenced by that going price of gas. And this doesn't stop companies putting their prices up in response to gas prices, but it does help prevent prices being inflated above and beyond what is fair. So I'm not sure profiteering is the right way to look at this, really, if I'm being completely honest. And we like honesty on this uh, podcast. And Sophie, given what you're saying, and it's true, the fluctuations in price really do seem to be outside their control and inevitably will fluctuate. So how important is it to focus on the longer term strategy shifts when it comes to the low carbon debate? It's really important. And also, depending on what your preferences are or what you might be looking for on that aspect, it's really, really crucial to look at the kind of the fundamentals of a business. And as you're saying, gas prices are so out of their control. It's important to look at what's going on in the core of a business and the things that they can control. And when you're looking at that, I think it's wrong to put them all in the same bucket, as it were, particularly when you're looking at the the shift to renewable energy. So starting with BP... The main source of their all-important free cash flow. So by free cash flow, I mean what's left um, after paying for kind of the running of the company and that money that is left to pay dividends or pay down debt. That is still coming from legacy, old-fashioned oil and gas assets. So really, BP's kind of shift to focus on renewables is, is I think, quite brave, certainly braver than some rivals. It's committing its future spending to lower carbon products. So in the first quarter of this year, it spent $1.9 billion on those lower carbon projects against $1.3 billion on oil and gas operations, which I think is pretty stark when you, when you see it laid out that way. And um, it's not just that. The group is planning to sell down billions more of traditional assets in the coming years, with low carbon project spending up tenfold 
to um, 5 billion by 2030. And we're seeing from BP a real effort to change and to kind of future-proof itself. But with that, and it's important to keep this in mind, it's putting a lot of eggs in the, in the same basket. So it's an admirable set of goals, certainly, but it does increase risk in quite a big way because if the shift to renewables stalls in any way or is slower than expected, BP is very exposed. So that's BP. What about Shell? Because it's been making some headlines with contracts it's been signing to potentially develop more solar and wind projects. However, is this still small fry? To be completely honest, it's a lot less of a clear-cut strategy. The majority of its spending is, is still being funnelled towards traditional upstream. Upstream is just corporate speak for the exploration for and extraction of, of crude oil, natural gas and natural gas liquids. So it's also in that division it markets and transports oil and gas and, and kind of operates the infrastructure necessary to get them to market. So that's all upstream means. So from an investment perspective, Shell would definitely be more of a traditional oil and gas option for now. That's not to say it's not going to pitch itself more substantially towards greener options. But for now, it's focusing its investment and growth on tried and tested oil and gas. What other companies have you been watching then, Sophie, in the renewable space? A really interesting one is called Vestas, which is a Denmark-based company. And it's essentially in the business of manufacturing, installing and servicing wind turbines. Um, So it's quite a clear-cut renewables option. Its biggest kind of money maker the biggest segment there is is its power solutions which is kind of just over half of 2020 revenue it's probably the biggest company you've never heard of it's got 29,000 employees so it's certainly not small fry it's got a good long-term position in my opinion um, but just something to to definitely keep in mind is those supply chain problems which you know we were discussing in previous podcasts and they just haven't gone away particularly for this industry those issues are likely to cause an issue for the foreseeable future so there could be some volatility from Vestas but I think on the whole they're pretty interesting. Sophie that was really interesting thank you. Now we can hear from Emma Wall who's our head of investment research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. She's been talking to Evie Hambro who's manager of the BlackRock World Mining Trust about the big issues facing commodities investors amid the rising oil price. Hi Evie. Hi Emma how are you? I'm very well thanks how are you? I'm pretty good. So a lot going on in commodity markets at the moment, energy prices, natural resources. What's causing the current rally? We've been in a long-term journey here, and what we're seeing is some acuteness playing out in today's moves and some extreme moves based on you know different commodities and, and different supply and, and demand characteristics for each one of them. But I'd say that the general theme that we've been seeing that's been kind of driving us to where we've got to is that over the last decade, almost exactly a decade now, we've seen long-term trends in resource companies choosing to be much more disciplined in the way that they allocate capital. And as a result of that, they have made a lower level of reinvestment back into new supply because they've been targeting value over volume. And this long-term trend of underinvestment has improved returns for uh, investors in the businesses. But what it's done is it's left us uh, at today's point where we're now seeing very, very strong growth in demand and likely to see strong rates of demand for the next couple of decades. And I'll repeat that again, a couple of decades 
trades based around you know the required investment that we're seeing globally for the transition to a net zero economy and therefore without large investment into new supply commodity markets are likely to remain tight and what we're seeing you know in the short term just recently is where there is some form of disruption as we've seen in natural gas markets and you know we're seeing now play out in in thermal coal and, and other areas you know that's causing some very very large price moves because the markets are just really really tight now obviously you don't have a crystal ball but you've alluded there to the fact that some of these tailwinds are short-lived so what can we expect from prices in the near term we always kind of stray away from trying to be experts on the short term because nobody really has the insight to be able to anticipate what's going to happen in the next hour or, or, or so on. What we tend to do is look at those long-term trends. And, you know, we're in a period now of what we are calling greenflation. We're seeing significant inflationary pressures across the world, be it in terms of input costs and wage growth. We're also seeing green-related inflation based on demand pull. As I said earlier on, the, the move to build out huge amounts of net new infrastructure to get through the carbon transition over the next couple of decades is going to be driving that demand growth. And I think what we're seeing right now is we're going to see well-supported commodity prices and as a result, great margins for commodity producers. Now, I imagine that's creating some investment opportunities. Where looks attractive to you at the moment? I'd say the whole space looks attractive as just as a generalization, because, you know, we've got most companies today trading at multiples well below their historical averages across the resources space, especially in the mining area. And whether you look at price to earnings multiples or many of the other characteristics, then, you know, you will see a lot of value there. The other factor is that the resource companies, after the kind of problems at the end of the China-related cycle over a decade now, they were carrying huge amounts of debt. And what's happened over this last decade is that the companies have significantly deleveraged themselves. So therefore, the risk for investors investing in resource companies today is much lower because they don't have that balance sheet indebtedness. So the quality of the investment has risen, the capital discipline is much stronger, and we've got this incredibly positive tailwind with regards to demand growth. And therefore, commodity prices are driving earnings and companies are choosing to return the surplus cash that they have. And you know, it is growing at a very, very rapid rate now. They're choosing to return it via dividends and in some cases, share buybacks. So we're seeing opportunities across the space. But most narrowly, if you looked at it, it would be the broad mining companies. Evie, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Emma. So that was our Head of Investment Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, Emma Wall with Evie Hambro, Manager of the BlackRock World Mining Trust. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. Yes, we've been hearing about some of the exciting innovations happening in the energy world. So I've been digging out some more unusual alternative energy sources and it's up to you to guess which ones are real and which ones are figments of my imagination. So is there, Sarah, a country that runs buses on vodka? <laughs> on vodka? Oh, I can't see how that would work. It sounds, it sounds horrendously expensive for a start. No, that, that can't be true. That's made up. No, in fact, it's actually a money-saving option. Alcohol is taxed really heavily in Sweden, so there's a serious smuggling trade going on. The beer, wine and spirits the authorities confiscate is actually turned into biogas, which runs trucks and buses and even a train. Confiscated alcohol technically has no value. And it used to be poured down the drain, of course. So rather than being expensive, it's actually a really cheap fuel. So how about then... 
a bus that runs on human waste. Ah, now I've heard of this one. So, I mean, it was really shocking. It was the number two route in Bristol for a while, wasn't it? And actually, I remember when they took it out of service and there was a headline about the poo bus had gone down the pan. I mean, it's just really shocking. Oh, dear. That's too good. (laughs) It is no longer running, sadly, the number two Bristol bus. But Bristol still does have biogas buses which run on the methane produced from waste food. All of which sounds lovely, doesn't it? Okay, finally, can you power your smartwatch using your body's heat? Well, I know I definitely couldn't at the moment. I don't know, it just doesn't sound very lightly. I'm going to say no to this one as well. Well, you can, you can. At the moment, there are only a handful of early devices around, but in time, it could become the norm. Although, maybe not in your broom cupboard, Sarah. Yeah, and I'm going to have to give in now. I think I'm actually going to have to turn my heating on. Well, before I go and get my jumpers on and my candles out, we need to remind you that this was recorded on the 18th of October and all information was true at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice, so you should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments can rise and fall in value, so you could get back less than you invest. And as you've heard, tax rules can change and any benefits will depend on your individual circumstances. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own views on any proposed investment. This hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and it's considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HN has put controls in place including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Nicholas, Evie, Sophie and Emma, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you can get a fresh new episode in your box as soon as it's ready. Goodbye.